This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I'm Dr. Peter Drotman, Editor-in-Chief of the Emerging Infectious Disease Journal. And today I'm talking with Dr. Jim Hughes, who is Professor of Medicine and Public Health at the Emory University. He was for a good many years, the director of the National Center for Infectious Diseases at CDC. And we're going to discuss the 20-year history of the EID Journal. Full disclosure here, Dr. Hughes is the person who appointed me editor-in-chief. That was back in 2001. And in fact, in the 20-year history of the journal, he is the only director who has appointed or hired an editor-in-chief for this journal. The first one, the founding editor, Dr. Joe McDade, back in 1995. Please tell us a little bit about what was going on at CDC and the birth of the field of emerging infectious diseases that gave rise to EID. Well, Peter, thank you, first of all, for the invitation to be here today. Uh, I'd like to take the opportunity to congratulate you and everyone else involved on the 20th anniversary of my favorite journal. Now, in terms of how this journal came to be, in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, there began to be an awareness of the challenges that microbes would pose in the future. And we had a number of examples of emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. The Institute of Medicine formed an expert committee that was co-led by Dr. Joshua Letterberg and Dr. Robert Shope back in the very early 1990s to take a look at domestic preparedness and response capacity for new and emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. In 1992, they issued a seminal report from the Institute of Medicine. That report had a number of recommendations in it, the majority of which actually targeted CDC. So in the National Center for Infectious Diseases at that time, we took that uh, report very seriously, and we thought about ways in which we could respond to the recommendations in it that were directed at CDC. During 1993 and 1994, a lot of work was done by a lot of people led by Dr. Ruth Berkelman to develop a CDC emerging infection strategy, and that was issued in 1994. I will say that we had the support of Dr. Letterberg and Dr. Shope and other members of the committee in doing that, and we had uh, enthusiastic support from Dr. David Satcher, who was uh, director of CDC at that time. In 1994, the Emerging uh, Infection Strategy uh, was issued, and part of what it called for was increased interdisciplinary collaboration and better communication between people involved in clinical medicine, research, and public health. Joe McDade, at the time, was in a leadership position in the National Center for Infectious Diseases, and he really came up with the concept of developing a peer-reviewed journal that could focus in a very timely way on dissemination of information about emerging infectious disease issues. 
although we didn't really realize it at the time, I don't think, what came out of this was emerging infectious diseases. Yeah, getting back to uh, the founding editor, Joe McDade, he is a laboratory scientist who sort of led by example. And he was one of the, and perhaps the main discoverer, of Legionella pneumophila back in 1976 that may have even predated your starting to work with him. Uh, do, do you have any recollection of his work in the lab with uh, the late Charles Shepard and with his subsequent work in uh, Ehrlichia and other emerging infections that he had a hand in uncovering? Well, to put that in perspective, I was actually at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville in 1976 doing my infectious disease fellowship. So I was aware uh, through media reports of this uh, outbreak of unexplained respiratory illness in Legionnaires in, in Philadelphia. And I was aware that there was a, a long-running attempt to identify the etiologic agent. I didn't know Joe at that time, but I, did, I was aware of his uh, role in the discovery of the organism. And of course, this happened before the, the terminology emerging infections was in vogue, but Joe was introduced early on to an important new emerging infectious disease and, and made a, a um, historic contribution in terms of discovering the etiologic agent. Now, you mentioned Drs. Shope and uh, Joshua Letterberg. Uh, the late Bob Shope was a founding member of the editorial board of, uh, of EID, and I think he sometimes described, uh, at least up until that time, as the scientist who had discovered the largest number of arboviruses in the history of that field. I don't know if that is a record that still stands or not. But uh, Joshua Letterberg, who was not actually a formal member of our editorial board, but a magnificent friend of EID and uh, was looking out for our interests and took great uh, care to see that uh, uh, he, he he would do anything he could to help us succeed, including uh, writing articles once in a while for us and lobbying with the National Library of Medicine to have our articles included uh, in their catalogs earlier than they might otherwise have been. But you worked more closely with Josh Letterberg uh, than I did. Please uh, tell me some of your recollection of, of uh, his contributions. Well, Josh Letterberg was a phenomenal individual, as you know. Um, and he played a critically important role as a champion and an advocate for the CDC Emerging Infection Strategy and for the Emerging Infectious Diseases Journal. Both he and Dr. Shope and a few other members of the expert committee that developed the 1992 Institute of Medicine report came to visit CDC, I think, in 1991, but as that report was nearing completion, because they realized they did not have a full picture of CDC capacity and, and role in uh, responding to emerging infectious disease issues. 
Dr. Bill Roper was CDC director at the time, and I remember that Dr. Letterberg, Dr. Shope, and, and four or five other members of the committee visited for a day and, and met with Dr. Roper, uh, me, and others in the director's conference room, the old room 207 that many of CDC old-timers are familiar with uh, in uh, Building 1, which is no longer uh, with us. Uh, but that meeting was critically important because the committee did uh, become more aware of the role that CDC ought to be playing and the numerous constraints that CDC faced at that time in terms of public health capacity and our ability to work with state and local health departments and to link with people in clinical and uh, academic medicine was, was not what it needed to be. So some of those recommendations to strengthen those capacities appeared in the 1992 report. Once the report came out, Dr. Letterberg felt that there needed to be a vigorous CDC response and he supported us in that, and he co-chaired one of the meetings that we had with external partners during the time that the strategy was being developed. Now, let's go to some specific examples. I, I sort of had a, a baptism of fire, so to speak, and that I became the uh, acting editor-in-chief in 2001. And the first issue that had my name associated with it was a, uh, a theme issue dedicated to the then brand new West Nile virus uh, invasion of North America. We had an entire uh, issue devoted to that. And within a month or two after that, we had the uh, anthrax attacks in uh, the East Coast, several cities and a number of prominent uh, and uh, and regular citizen individuals involved. And we not only rushed to publish the first 10 cases of inhalational anthrax, but then within one year had an entire issue devoted to the investigations. And that th those two um, initial outbreaks that I had some role in overseeing peer review certainly illustrates what you were just talking about, about the need to work with state, local, clinical, and other uh, uh, scientists. Well, you certainly had a baptism of fire. I remember the West Nile outbreak and obviously the anthrax letter attacks uh, quite vividly. Uh, those were dramatic examples of the need to uh, broaden the interdisciplinary ap approach and engage a much broader range of partners. Um, and the journal uh, and its ability to rapidly publish peer-reviewed uh, new scientific evidence uh, was very important in that way. And that evolving reputation and uh, cadre of reviewers and guest editors helped us when the sort of uh, landmark year of 2003 in the history of emerging infectious diseases, uh, anybody in the field instantly recognizes monkeypox and SARS as two big events that dramatically uh, illustrate uh, why we need to know about emerging infections and 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 expand our knowledge. Indeed, I know you were in the hot seat on both of those issues. 
The seat was indeed pretty hot, uh, particularly because SARS was not over when um, monkeypox uh, was recognized. So we were all on the hot seat in uh, 2003, first with uh, the SARS pandemic, uh, and before that was over, uh, the recognition of uh, monkeypox in the United States, the first time that monkeypox had been recognized in the uh, Western Hemisphere. These are both zoonotic diseases, um, as the investigation showed, and they reinforce the need to uh, engage in a One Health approach, to engage veterinarians and others involved with uh, animal health, both uh, domestic animals and uh, wildlife, and people involved in environmental health. That's the the, uh, One Health arena, the intersection between human health, animal health, and environmental health. The um, the SARS uh, outbreak was featured prominently in the Emerging Infectious Disease uh, Journal. And it reminds me, actually, SARS was named by Dr. Heyman and colleagues at WHO as the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS. Yeah, that's in- Dr. David Heyman, who is now at Public Health England and was then and still is a member of our editorial board. Yes, a distinguished individual, and he was uh, an assistant director general at WHO at the time of the the, uh, SARS outbreak. But back in 1993, at the time within um, six months of the release of that Institute of Medicine report in the fall of 1992, There was an outbreak of severe acute respiratory disease recognized by an alert clinician on the Navajo Reservation in the southwestern United States. We weren't clever enough to think of that SARS acronym at the time, but if we had been, it would have certainly applied. It turned out, to everyone's surprise, to be caused by a previously unrecognized hantavirus named Sonombre virus, and the disease is known as hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. What that outbreak and a couple of other big outbreaks around that same time did was draw public and policymaker attention to the 1992 IOM report and its recommendations. And it, um, it made our, um, our work to develop the CDC strategy even more urgent. As you pointed out, many of the emerging infections of uh, public health importance have their origin in the animal world. And a hallmark of this journal is that its scope extends to the animal world. So we don't only consider and publish papers that deal with human infections, but also animal infections, food chain infections, and uh, infections that move from one species to another. By 2005, we had recruited a few associate editors from the uh, zoonosis and veterinary uh, medical community, and we did a theme issue in December of that year that was filled with reports of emerging zoonoses. And that proved so popular that we actually don't even have guest editors for that issue, but every December we fill the issue with reports of emerging zoonoses. Now, you've been uh, president of the uh, IDSA in uh, in recent years, 
serving a term and traveling around the country, and you work with state health departments and uh, uh, both medical schools and, I assume, also uh, uh, veterinary leaders. Can you say something about uh, bridging the gap or sometimes called One Health issues? Is that something that is becoming of greater interest to public health scientists? Well, first of all, let me say I did have the honor and privilege of serving as president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, IDSA, a few years ago. And I was able to introduce the, the need for this One Health approach to other leadership in the society. And I remember we had some interesting discussions at board of directors meetings about the need to reach out more to engage the veterinary, uh, clinical, and public health communities. This, this idea, this One Health approach is not new. It really goes back to the 19th century. Uh, but it's been promoted in recent years primarily uh, by individuals from the animal health world. It's been a little slower to catch on in human medicine and public health and in environmental medicine and public health, although there has been progress, and the microbes are out there to continually remind us of the need for a broad interdisciplinary approach in terms of strengthening our abilities to monitor, detect early, uh, diagnose, and respond effectively to these emerging uh, diseases that cross species lines, as the majority of recently recognized emerging pathogens have done. Not only does the science of emerging infections advance, and not only do the disease and the microbes advance, but our uh, our capabilities need to advance. As Joshua Letterberg always used to say, his favorite quote, it's our wits versus their genes. So what do you think the future holds? The future clearly holds more challenges in this arena. You took the words out of my mouth by quoting our, Dr. Letterberg. His, uh, his point that he's, he made over and over again is that uh, we're in an era where the, it's apparent that we are in a, uh, a, a confrontation, if you will, between microbes and uh, our genes. So our wits better be up to the uh, challenge. Now, as we know, not all microbes are bad. In fact, the vast majority are, are uh, either innocuous or uh, quite good for us, in fact, and work uh, that's ongoing on the, the uh, human microbiome uh, provides lots of uh, evidence of that, and that's a topical area f for the journal in the future as well, I, I would say. Um, over the years, it has occurred to me that the, the Institute of Medicine Committee identified six factors that contributed to disease emergence back in 1992, and a follow-on uh, committee, uh, IOM committee, that was co-chaired by Dr. Letterberg and Dr. Peggy Hamburg, who's just recently announced that she's stepping down as commissioner of FDA, issued the follow-on report in 2003, and they added seven additional factors that contribute to disease emergence and re-emergence, and they validated the original six. 
if you look at that long list of 13 factors and you think about trends, you would see that trends in most of those factors actually operate in favor of the microbes. So I've always felt that microbes, in a sense, are a probe. The pathogenic microbes are, are a bit of a probe, and we should regard them that way because they clearly demonstrate deficiencies in human behaviors and uh, public health systems and healthcare systems uh, uh, in the United States and around the world. Uh, we've seen that most recently with the tragic Ebola situation in, in West Africa that is ongoing. The um, Ebola situation was declared by Dr. Margaret Chan back in early August as a public health emergency of international concern. We haven't had a chance to really talk about the international health regulations that WHO uh, updated and, and issued in 2005 that went into effect in 2007. This is an international treaty signed by over 190 member states of WHO. There remains a lot of work to do to fully implement these international health regulations, and the Ebola uh, experience, tragic as it is, has yet again reinforced the need to do that in a timely way. Actually, AEID published a theme issue on the uh, fifth anniversary of the signing of that treaty with a, uh, a collection of articles on the international health regulations. It was well-received by people who follow regulatory public health quite closely, but it was not one of the more popular issues that uh, that we published, although we're glad we did it. It, uh, it may be time to dust off some of the experiences and some of the reports uh, on them because clearly we need to pay close attention to the issues that uh, result in the need for uh, such policies. On another topic that uh, is certainly among the uh, factors that uh, contribute to emergence is the uh, dwindling power of some of the tools we use to address uh, emerging infections and, and garden variety infections for that matter, and that is the issue of antimicrobial resistance, which uh, has so many aspects to it. I know that you've been interested in that topic over uh, uh, literally decades. What are uh, some, of the, uh, some of your thoughts on it? Well, antibiotic resistance is here to stay, and it's getting worse. And it, it seems that every week or so, <clears throat> there's a report of a, a new problem with a uh, so-called superbug, uh, a multiply resistant organism that uh, can't be treated with many, if any, currently available antibiotics. Uh, this problem is a, uh, a challenge to clinicians, uh, to researchers, and to people in public health in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, WHO has, has noticed this and is taking the, this problem seriously. Um, the president, um, President Obama, recently released an executive order uh, telling federal agencies to take this problem uh, very seriously and providing some specific direction uh, to them. And the President's Council of uh, Scientific Advisors, the PCAST committee, recently issued a very important report on this problem as well. This is a problem in human health and animal health uh, and environmental health. 
Uh, and it requires a multifaceted strategy and a lot of transdisciplinary collaboration to address it effectively. Part of the problem is lack of an antibiotic development pipeline, which is why you hear people talking about concerns about returning to the pre-antibiotic era. For many uh, years, new antibiotics were coming along pretty regularly, but that has that pipeline has largely dried up. Uh, it's they're beginning to be some encouraging signs that that um, uh, large and small pharmaceutical companies are beginning to re-engage somewhat in uh, work to uh, discover new antibiotics and bring them to market. But that's a that's an eight to ten to twelve year uh, effort in the case of any individual uh, drug. So it's important in the meantime that we develop <clears throat> uh, rapid point of care diagnostic tests. Um, that will allow uh, physicians to um, uh, uh, apply them to patients with unexplained respiratory illness and provide guidance in terms of whether an antibiotic is uh, indicated. Uh, antibiotic stewardship programs in hospitals, uh, development of uh, vaccines targeting uh, antibiotic-resistant organisms. These are all part of a multifaceted strategy, as is strengthened surveillance and monitoring of both antibiotic resistance in humans and animals and antibiotic usage in both humans and animals. So we have our work cut out for us. Indeed you do. And you can read about it in the pages of Emerging Infectious Diseases. I'm Dr. Peter Drotman for Emerging Infectious Diseases, talking today with Dr. Jim Hughes of Emory University and formerly of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you would like to comment on this podcast, please send an email to editor, all one word, editor at cdc.gov. For the most accurate health information, visit www.cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.